Assalamualaikum. Uh, greetings of peace be upon you all. Uh, praise be uh, to God uh, this uh, this morning in uh, in UK and uh, evening in uh, Malaysia. Uh, we welcome you to the seventh session or seventh uh, seminar on the the book of certainty by Dr. Martin Dings. And we have, as usual, our uh, commentator, our beloved commentator, Dr. Reza Shah Kazmi, uh, to bring us through. I think we are uh, at chapter two, if I'm not mistaken. Hey, we are. We are indeed. We are yes. chapter two. Okay. Um, so uh, without further ado, I, I uh, leave it to you, uh, Dr. Reza. Um, well, actually, I was going to say, would you like to read? It's it's a short chapter. It's not like we've taken so long on on chapter one, but this is only a few pages. So, shall we start by uh, having you read? Let's say until, well, in my edition, there's a sort of natural breaking point, uh, which is just before we start talking about the date. As the, the gardens, that's on page 15 in my edition, which is one, two, three and a half pages. But basically, nearly towards the end. But I think it's good to stop there before we go into the question of the date. Uh, what do you think? Would you prefer to read the whole of the four and a half pages? It's all right. I mean, uh, I can read it because it's only a, a short. It is paragraph to, towards the end. Yeah, until the and end. Before of, we, until the end of the chapter. Before we, before we start, I've just got to say I, I thought that when you said "Praise be to God" in the morning in UK and in the evening here in Malaysia, I thought you were going to say this is a perfect uh, sabab nuzul for Subhanallah, hina tumsoon wa hina tusbihun. That's right. Which, for the sake of, of those people who may not know the Quranic Arabic here, uh, there's it's in the Surah Ar-Rum, I think. Uh, is it Rum? Yeah. I think it's Surah Ar-Rum, the Surah of the Romans, where it says, Glory be to God when you enter into the evening and when you enter into the morning. So what we're doing now is you're entering into your evening, I'm entering into my morning. And we're saying, glorified be God. <laughs> so let's carry on. Yes, all right. Uh, so uh, chapter two, the garden of the spirit. And for him that feareth, feareth the high degree of his Lord, there are two gardens. And beyond these are two other gardens. Therein are two fountains gushing. Therein is fruit, and the date palm, and the pomegranate. Quran, chapter 55, verse 46, 62, 66, and 68. Between the degree of human perfection and that of extinction in the divine perfection, there are said to be innumerable spiritual degrees whose multiplicity is sometimes represented by symbolic number, as is the multiplicity of the different heavens to which they correspond. Apart from considering universal man in the supreme truth, it is possible to consider him also according to his plenitude in one of these spiritual degrees. Thus, for example, it is said that on the night journey, when the Prophet was taken from Mecca to Jerusalem, and thence up through the next world to the divine presence, he met one other prophet in each of the seven heavens. For this does not mean that each of these prophets had only reached the heaven in which he was encountered, but that, as it were, below his extinction in the truth of certainty, his spirit is considered as presiding over that particular heaven in view of some special characteristic. The seven heavens together make up one of the paradises, which the chapter of the All-Merciful, 
mentioned in the above quoted verses as being of the number of four. According to the commentary, the two first mentioned of these paradises are the gardens of the soul and the heart, above which is the celestial paradise, the garden of the spirit, which comprises the seven heavens, and finally, the garden of the essence itself. When the archangel Gabriel appeared to the prophet on earth, he did so in the form of a man of the most marvelous beauty. For indeed, the human eye was not created to receive any more direct manifestation of the truth than this. Nor could the earth itself have endured the unmitigated presence of any heavenly power. But on the night journey, when the zenith of the seventh heaven had been reached, all the prophet's possibilities had been, as it were, reabsorbed into his supreme spiritual plenitude, which is named the light of Muhammad, Anurul Muhammadi. And with the eye of this light, he was able to look upon that which he had never seen before. And indeed, his sight now demanded no less an object of perception than the full unveiled glory of the archangel. Twice only did he behold this wonder, both times during the night journey. The first vision was just before the light of Muhammad was reabsorbed into the light of the essence, that is, just before his entry into the divine presence, before he and the archangel had begun their return journey in descent through the different heavens, that is, before the two splendors had begun to diminish. The second vision was on his re-emerging from the presence, before he and the archangel had begun their return journey in descent through the different heavens, that is, before the two splendors had begun to diminish, just as in an ascent, just as in a sense, they had gradually increased, each in proportion to the diminishment of the other's capacity for beholding. It is the full vision which is referred to in the following verses from the chapter of the star. And these verses express also universal man's direct consciousness that absolutely nothing is independent of the truth and that even the greatest glories of creation for all their apparently self-sufficient brightness are not in reality to be separated from the glory of the Creator. And verily he saw him at another revelation beside the low tree of the utmost boundary, whereby is the garden of refuge. When there enshrouded the low tree, that which enshroudeth the sight wavered not, nor did it transgress. Verily he saw of the signs of his Lord, the greatest. Quran, chapter 53, verses 3 to 18. 13. Verses 13, 13 to 18. Yeah. In the words of the commentator, the low tree is a tree in the seventh heaven which marks the boundary of the angel's knowledge. None of them knows what is beyond it. It is the Supreme Spirit, a Ruhul A'wam, above which there is nothing but the pure selfhood, Al-Huwiyah, Al-Huwiyah. He, the Prophet, was not veiled by it, the low tree, and his form, nor by Gabriel in the fullness of his angelhood from the truth when it overflowed upon the low tree. And therefore he has said, the sight wavered not by turning aside and looking at other than it, nor did it transgress through looking at itself and being veiled by the individuality. Right. Should we just have a, a break there? Because that's about halfway through this chapter and there are quite a lot of points that are being made that there may be questions concerning. Um, one thing I'd just like to do is to read out the note uh, 18 in my edition after the word transgress. 
It says here, the Dr. Ling says, the word transgress may be understood in the light of the utterance of Rabia al-Adawiyya. Thine existence is a sin wherewith no other sin can be compared. Wujuduka dhambun la yuqasu bihi dhamb. Your very existence is a sin. So Dr. Lings is trying to help us to understand that basaru wa ma taha in the Arabic. The sight didn't go from side to side. Wa we get the the, the, the word tahut, rebellious uh, beings. Um, and so transgressing and rebelling in the, in the sense of Taha, Dr. Lings is saying that esoterically it could be understood that, of course, the Prophet's sight couldn't be guilty of any, quote, transgression in the moral sense of the term, but only ontologically it can be related to that vision of oneself, which the commentator refers to, nor did it transgress through looking at itself and being veiled by the individuality. So just as it's a wonderful way of explaining this idea of, trans, of an ontological transgression as opposed to a moral transgression. The ontological transgression, transgression vis-a-vis -vis being and existence, uh, and here in Arabic we have the same word for both, wujud, but in English we have the advantage of saying that existence is what stands apart from, ex stare, stands apart from being. So being is that which is, we exist, so we stand apart from being. And if we look at ourselves or have self-awareness or self-consciousness uh, as separate entities from being, then we have committed the worst of all sins compared as uh, described by Rabia al-Adawiya. So this was a story a man came to Rabia and said, I haven't sinned for 30 years, something like that. He was boasting that he has given up his sins for 30 years, he stopped it. And then she said this great statement to him, which was one of the many kinds of statements that she made, which is why all the great scholars of her time would come just for a word of wisdom from her, and they would go off illuminated by just a few moments with her. And she was capable of giving these immediate, uh, almost like repartee in spiritual terms, um, and would show up the ignorance, spiritually speaking, of these people who were coming to see her, and they would go off better aware of their own limitations. So this was when the man said, I haven't sinned for 30 years. And she said, your own existence is a sin compared to which no other sin, to which no other sin can be compared. So if only you knew. So I just wanted to make that point. And also just wanted to ask our participants if there are any questions arising out of what has just been read uh, i have one if i may oh yeah please uh say somebody else before me what is the sound pardon oh no i heard somebody somebody else i thought somebody Carry else on, was yeah. gonna um uh, perhaps uh, uh my questions is a bit uh it might be a bit uh, it's a bit uh, technical uh, it's regarding the word uh, jannah uh, in arabic uh, the translation uh, in in this book uh, the words heaven and uh, paradise uh, are used uh, it seems like inter uh, interchangeably uh, right. to to uh, to interpret or or as a substitute for uh, jannah 
So can you uh, explain, uh, can you uh, enlighten us uh, on this? Because uh, from the, uh, because in, in, in our language, in Malay language, also have difficulty to actually to translate uh, the, uh, the Jannah into, uh, uh, to find a, a word to translate Jannah and of course, uh, and heaven and paradise. So what's the difference uh, actually? Uh, so, yeah, there is a distinction between uh, when Dr. Lings uses the word uh, heavens in the plural, he's always referring to the invisible heavens, the Samawat. And those Samawat are, are visible heavens that are symbols of corresponding degrees in paradise. Paradise conceived here as we have in the Surah Rahman just now, two gardens and then another two gardens and this is just one kind of tripart as uh, a uh, uh, quadripartite division but um as he said also in regard to the isra and the miraj that the prophet traversed seven of the heavens over which a particular prophet presided not because they were limited to that heaven symbolizing a degree in paradise, but only because this was that heaven that corresponded to a particular quality of their personality, either their mission, their personality on earth, something that made, made them preside over that degree of, and we can see this in two ways, that, that degree of paradisal reality and that degree of spiritual realization that's a very important point to get across as regards Kashani's remember this commentary is called uh, Tafsir Ibn Arabi sometimes Tatwil Ibn Arabi Tatwilat but in fact it's Abdul Razak al Kashani who was a hundred and something years later um, so this is a very important point to realize regarding the um, perspective of Kashani, that everything that is said about eschatology, about the paradisal degrees above and beyond us, is also to be understood as a symbol or a degree of spiritual realization within the soul. So this microcosmic interpretation uh, is called tatbiq in Arabic, the particular kind of ta'wil he's doing is called tatbiq, which means correspondences. That what is it outwardly, like Joseph and his brothers, they correspond not only to the archetypes in paradise of the, uh, the twelve, like the gardens that flow, the rivers that gush, but they also correspond to different faculties of the soul, in particular when it comes to spiritual realization. Those bad things that Joseph's brothers did are the kind of whispering souls within us, the nafs al-amara, and the, uh, the receptivity for the hamazat of shaitan. Hamazat is shayateen, the prophet. Uh, in, uh, in one surah, we're told to say, قُلْ وَقُلْ رَبِّ أَعُوذُ بِكَ مِنْ هَمَزَاتِ الشَّيَاطِينَ وَأَعُوذُ بِكَ رَبِّ أَنْ يَحْضُرُونَ Say, O oh Lord, I seek refuge in you from the whisperings and insinuations and seductions of the shayateen, of the demons, and I seek refuge in you lest they be present with me. So those elements in the soul that are susceptible to these insinuations and whisperings and seductions of the demons are represented symbolically in the narrative of Joseph and his brothers by what they were brought to do against their own heart intellect. Joseph was the symbol of their own heart intellect and they plotted against him, they were jealous and they tried to kill him. That's a symbol for what we do whenever we become jealous of, of somebody else. What we're actually doing is trying to kill our own spirit. And that's how devastating it is for the spiritual life to be seduced into jealousy. So this is just one example. Now, as regards the degrees of paradise, uh, 
heaven, when Dr. Lins refers to heaven in the singular, it can be seen as being interchangeable with paradise, with the garden, with Jannah. Uh, but when he says the seven heavens, that's referring to the Samawat. So in English, we have to make sure that we don't confuse the cosmological idea of the heaven, the visible heavens, with the eschatological and um, posthumous, as it were, the, the reality of the garden that comes after death in eschatological terms um, and in ontological terms, which is a completely different degree of being altogether. And as regards the word Jannah itself, it, um, I think it means simply inclining to, um, to being hidden, to, to being concealed. It's so, and it's like that word mudhamatan that we have in the Surah Ar-Rahman, describing the two higher gardens uh, as being mudhamatan. Mudhama is so green, so lusciously green, like what you have in your rainforests in Southeast Asia, so lusciously green that they appear to be dark. It's sort of inclining to blackness, as opposed to the two other gardens. Um, uh, oh, I forget what it is now. After the, the two first gardens, it talks about the Wata Afnam. Both of them have branches spreading out. So this is a good uh, preparation for us to understand the difference of degree uh, between the two sets of gardens. The two lower gardens have, are described immediately after being spoken about. They're described as having branches. These are the gardens, remember, of the soul and the heart. That particular degree of paradise which pertains to the soul, and that particular degree which pertains to the heart. And later in this chapter and in subsequent ones, Dr. Lings will explain further how to understand these distinctions. Uh, but after the first two gardens are mentioned, um, we say we are told that these two gardens have branches outspread. And then it talks about the Wafihima Ainani Tajriyan. In both of these lower gardens, there are fountains flowing. Now, if you compare those two with what happens in the higher gardens, it's very, very illustrative. So the two higher gardens are described by Midunihima Jannatan. So these are not gardens that have trees with branches outspread. These are gardens that are described as being so lusciously green that they're tending unto darkness. So we're already getting a sense of being drawn into that mystery which is described by Solomon through the words of the Shulamite. I am black, but beautiful. We're already getting sense of Layla, of the night, of the essence. So yes, there's greenery, it's luscious, it's beautiful, but it's tending towards an even greater mystery, the glory of that light of the essence, which is so brilliant that it's a kind of darkness in comparison to apparent light. And then the next thing about this is we also have the description of of flowing fountains, but those fountains are called uh, So there, I forget exactly the root of that word, but I um, it's translated by Pigthor as as flowing in abundance. So whereas it's it's just a kind of ordinary flow, Tajriyan, Tajriyan in Tahtahal Anhar. This one, Nadakhatan, is a kind of superabundance. 
So it'd be interesting to look up the exact meaning of that word, nadasha, to see how to understand it. So here you see we get the sense of the two sets of gardens with the same kind of things happening. They all they both have fruits, they both have huris, they both have um, these uh, fountains flowing, and they both have, they're both obviously gardens. But the way in which they're described helps you to see, to intuit the difference of degree between these two pairs of gardens. So the other, the other point, technical point, as it were, is about Siddha, the Siddha Tamuntaha. Apparently, this, this tree is related to the Zisiphus Hohoba and to the Zisiphus, which is called Spina Christi, Christ-like spindles, because they say that this was the tree, or related to the tree, from which the crown of thorns of Jesus Christ was constructed. It's very interesting, the symbolism here, because you may know that in the Gospel, when Jesus speaks about his crucifixion that's coming up, he refers to it as the glorification of the Son of Man, saying, my glorification is soon coming. So, for, especially for the Eastern Orthodox Church, Jesus' crucifixion is coterminous with his glorification. It's tantamount to his glorification. Um, it's not so the Catholic point of view sees the, the, the full misery and the suffering, the grievous nature of the crucifixion. But for Jesus, for the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, they see the crucifixion in terms of, of the glorification. And it's very close to the, the Quranic idea, which in one of, the, one of the verses about the crucifixion said, they did not crucify him, but we raised him up to ourselves. We glorified him, in other words. So this crucifixion from the earthly point of view is a glorification from the celestial point of view and it's that point of view that the eastern orthodox affirm um, as opposed to just the crucifixion from the earthly point of view and also it's symbolic that the cross of jesus is effectively the wood from a tree and therefore the crown of thorns is like a representation of the sidra and therefore, it's like a connecting point that beyond this, this tree that also remember what Dr. Ling said from the commentary, that the Sidra al-Muntaha is the Ruh al-A'zam, Ruh al-A'zam, the most tremendous, the supreme spirit. And if we ask, what is the name of Jesus, according to the Quran, Ruhullah, wa kalimatun minhu. So, and as you know, Jesus is referred to in the Sufi tradition particularly as Ruhullah, the Spirit of God, just as Moses is referred to as Kalim Allah, the one to whom God spoke, God's interlocutor, you might say, and as the Prophet himself is called Habibullah, the beloved or the friend of God, the lover of God. So let's keep these symbolic associations in our mind as we proceed. And uh, uh, Abdurrahman, would you like to continue? We're at the Garden of Refuge in the middle of page 14 in my edition. The Garden of Refuge is the highest part of the Garden of the Spirit, to which in one or more parts of its parts or aspects apply also most of the other names of paradises which are mentioned in the Quran. But in respect of the spirits of those who are brought nigh, every paradise is virtually one of the gardens of Firdaus and may actually become so through that which enshroudeth as did the garden of refuge for the prophet and the archangel. Beside the low tree of the utmost boundary, that is, at the extreme verge of the created universe, there springs the fountain of the Spirit, which is one of the two fountains mentioned in the opening quotation. According to the commentary 
It is the knowledge of the oneness of the qualities. Here, the traveler has, as it were, the proof of the doctrine of divine unity. For it is said that from this paradise, the qualities appear like veils of light, behind each of which shines the light of the essence itself, which is always one and the same. Thus, the commentator further defines the fountain of the spirit as being the knowledge of contemplation, mushahada, whereas the fountain of the essence is knowledge of the unity of the essence, that is, knowledge of extinction. The date, which is the fruit of the garden of the spirit, is that which contains food and enjoyment, the contemplation of the celestial lights, and of the manifestations of the divine beauty and majesty in the station of the spirit. For in its paradise, the kernel of the individuality still remains, taking nourishment and delight therefrom. The pomegranate, which is the fruit of the paradise of the essence, is described as that which contains enjoyment and medicinal balm in the station of union in the paradise of the essence. It is direct consciousness of the, of the essence, a shuhud adhati, through pure extinction in which there is no individuality to be fed, but only unalloyed delight and the cure of the sickness of seeming to be left over, apart from the truth, in a state of insecurity. This is the fruit of the truth of certainty, and it is still beyond one who has reached only the garden of the spirit. But such a one may be said to have reached something more than the eye of certainty. For although his individuality, that is his self, still appears to remain, not being utterly consumed in the truth, he at least feels, as it were, the warmth of its flames. Whereas the eye of certainty sees these flames only, being the knowledge of one who has reached the state of human perfection and no more. Right, thank you very much. You know, I couldn't help feeling as, as you were reading that, that Dr. Linz was describing himself as being one who hasn't just seen the, the, uh, the fire of knowledge, um, of certainty, but that he himself is in between at the time that he wrote this, because remember, he was quite young when he wrote this. He was only in his 40s. Um, and uh, as, as we know from what we had at the first seminar, uh, he wrote this book in response to a request from friends in Egypt when he was leaving Egypt, which was about 1950, 51. Um, so, uh, yes, he would have been in his early 40s. Um, and that you can't help feeling that this is from himself, you see, because he has said that, that after having told us that the vision of the essence of the shuhud as verti, the essential vision, is one where the individuality is completely extinguished and the uh, it's the fruit of the, the pomegranate that symbolizes this degree of extinction in the essence because the pomegranate has no kernel like the date the date has the kernel and it has the fruit and so this duality in the date is an appropriate symbol or the duality that subsists within the garden of the spirit, where the individual spirit, the individual blessed person, prophet, saint, whatever they may be, their individuality subsists and they can see the divine reality by means of the qualities, the manifestations of Jamal and Jalal, of beauty and majesty. So there are there's a, a subject of witnessing, and there is the object witnessed. Shahidin wa mashhud, as we have in the surah 
al-buruj wa shahidin wa mashhur this duality between the shahid the contemplator the witness and the mashhud that which is contemplated that which is witnessed that which is seen so the date is the perfect symbol for that duality within the garden of the spirit whereas for the garden of the essence the pomegranate is the perfect symbol because it's it's a unity but all of its seeds and all of its fruit within the unity the flesh of the fruit and the tiny seed they are as it were undifferentiated synthetic unity so it's a multiplicity tightly held within into the unity so it's a perfect expression of the the hidden treasure when you look at the pomegranate you just see one thing but hidden within it are all these treasures and so it's a lovely um symbol of kuntu kanzan mahfiyan fa ahbabtu an u'raf fa khalaqtu al-a'la i was a hidden treasure and i loved to be known so i created um so when we look at that distinction between duality in the garden of the spirit and the synthesized multiplicity of infinitude within the absolute unity of ahadiyya of pure untrammeled unity um we see that uh the set one and the same prophet or saint or blessed person who is in the garden of the spirit is also simultaneously but at a higher degree ontologically speaking at a higher degree is simultaneously in that garden of the essence not as himself or herself but as that total unity and this is the one of the great mysteries of the insan or kamil the perfect human being that they subsist on these different levels and dr lins has mentioned a footnote about how the transcend in taoism you have the, the difference between the eye of certainty on footnote 20 the difference between the eye of certainty and the truth of certainty corresponds exactly to the distinction made by the taoists between the degrees of true man and transcendent man for a full definition of these terms see ran again on the great trier now what's interesting here is that we can also go to uh buddhism which distinguishes three degrees of the buddha phenomenon if you could say such a thing the nirmana kaya the samboga kaya and the dharma kaya the nirmana kaya is the buddha's earthly manifestation the samboga kaya is his presence in the celestial reality and then his dharma kaya is the the body if you like of the essence where he the buddha and the absolute reality are one and the same thing there is no distinction so we have exactly this uh parallelism uh in the gardens of the spirit and the gardens of the essence the garden of the essence jannata that um and as i say these are not to be understood as alternatives either or they're to be seen as subsisting in a complementary manner in simultaneity and not in succession that you know you have to go through the garden of the spirit before you can go to the garden of the essence or and this is something that shuan has written about very very beautifully in his chapter on the uh uh degrees of paradise i forget the actual title of the the chapter uh it's in logic and transcend the two paradises that's it the two paradises and then he talks about the elect the saved ones the muqarrabun who are in paradise and he refers to the christian notion of the elect who have crowns of uncreated light 
And he said, what this refers to is the difference of ontology, of ontological degree between the individuality of the blessed souls. They are individual souls, but they wear the crowns of uncreated light, which is a symbol of their attachment to and absorption within the garden of the essence, wherein they do not subsist as individuals, but where all of them are one. So you have to understand it almost like a kind of, you could think of them all on a, on a circle. And they're all facing outwards towards the world and through them are coming all of these graces into the world like fountains that flow remember we had this in the surah and in san earlier that for the ordinary saved um, people in paradise uh, the abrar the righteous ones they drink from a fountain of kafur uh, but they drink only from a cup which has been flavored with kafur. Whereas the muqarrabun, the ibadullah, the slaves of God, who are slaves because they no longer belong to themselves, they belong to God. When they drink, they drink directly from the fountain of kafur. And they, the more they drink from it, the more it flows abundantly. So, uh, the Ibadullah, the slaves of God, drink from the kafur, and the more they drink from it, the more it flows. It's a beautiful symbol, as, as Kashani says, of how because these slaves are one with this paradisal reality, there's no anaiya, no selfhood about them. They're completely effaced. Because when they drink from it, that fountain flows more abundantly. There's a beautiful symbol of how grace comes through individuals who have attained the highest degree of self-effacement in the real. And so if we imagine these blessed souls in paradise as situated on a circle of radiance around the central point, which the geometrical point of no dimensions, which the essence, the, the Jannatadat, is this mudhamatan, tending towards this infinite darkness because of the superabundance of the light of the essence, then we can understand that their oneness with this supreme source, remember in Arabic, source, fountain, essence, I, all of them are the same word in Arabic, Ain, even the pupil of the eye of insan. Insan is that pupil of the aim. So they are, as it were, receiving from this uncreated light, symbolized by their crowns. They receive as well as being absorbed by. They are reintegrated into it by virtue of these crowns of uncreated light, symbolizing their union with the Absolute One. But also they're receiving constantly graces because this is the the, the very function of the uncreated intellect. Why the Sufis say a Sufi, and we had this earlier in the book, a Sufi lam yukhlaq, the Sufi is not created. What is it about the Sufi that is not created? It's certainly not his body or his soul. It's his intellect, his heart, which contains the divine reality. And that is what... Um, Eckhart refers to as aliquid um, estin uh, anima. There is something in the soul. Increatum et increabile. Uncreated and uncreatable. Et hoc est intellectus. And that is the intellect. So this intellect that is uncreated in, in, as such in its essence, even though it manifests through a created intellect, through created intelligence. Uh, in its essence, it's uncreated. Now, the uncreated intellect is that which both receives, reflects, and transmits, and refracts. So on that one hand, the intellect, that 
first self-determination, what's called in Sanskrit buddhi, um, where we get the word buddha from precisely, the enlightened, the illuminated one. This is uh, a, a faculty which receives the uncreated light from the essence, from God. And not only receives it, but transmits it. Not only does it absorb it, but also refracts it. Not only does it reflect it back to the essence so that God's knowledge, remember, um, I was a hidden treasure and I loved to be known. How does God become known by something other? By creating the intellect. By, as it were, that's a, 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 a paradox, because we've just said that the intellect is uncreated. So how can God create the intellect in order to know himself through it? This is the kind of mystery that language cannot really cope with. We have to say, as Shuan says once or twice in his books, we are here at the borders of the inexpressible. We can't really understand it with, with words and with, with logic and with reason. We have to somehow intuit how the one could make itself other in order to be known by the other without un, without diminishing his oneness. Yeah, you, you get caught up in all these paradoxes, contradictions. You can't think it through. But God's self-determination, he determines himself as the intellect. This intellect somehow emerges from him. And this intellect is the means by which he knows himself, starting from the viewpoint of an other, as if there could be another. So, anyway, we won't go into that anymore. I think we've said enough. Are there any questions on what we've, we've just read? Oh, yes, this is what I want to say about how Dr. Lins, when he describes this, and I'll just read it again. Uh, the fruit of the truth of certainty is still beyond one who has reached only the garden of the spirit. But such a one who has only reached the garden of the spirit may be said to have reached something more than the eye of certainty. For although, remember, we had the knowledge of certainty, ilm al we had the ayn al and the haq al Ilm al is just hearing about the doctrine of certainty, hearing about the fire. Ayn al is actually seeing the fire. And the haq al is being a, a consumed by the fire. So Dr. Linz is saying here that even though one who has only attained the garden of the spirit and is not yet at the fullness of the realization of the prophets and the saints, um, remember this is both eschatologically to be understood posthumously in time, but also spiritually and ontologically in simultaneity right now, so that in this world, there are those who have realized the Jannatadat. And in this world, there are people like us who are striving to go from knowledge of certainty to actually the vision of the fire of certainty. So what he's saying here is that those who have not yet attained spiritually the garden of the spirit, and who are still in the lower gardens of the soul and the heart, Nonetheless, there are those souls, and I, this is why I think Dr. Lins is describing his state in his early 40s, when he says this, such a one may be said to have reached something more than the eye of certainty, for although his individuality, that is, his self, still appears to remain, not being utterly consumed in the truth, he at least feels, as it were, the warmth of its flames whereas the eye of certainty sees these flames only being the knowledge of one who has reached the state of human perfection and no more goodness well you know no more than just the state of human perfection so that itself is something what dr lings refers to as the attainment of the lesser mysteries and he's spoken about this in wonderful detail and um, most 
in an illuminating fashion in his book on Shakespeare. The difference between the lesser mysteries, which is the retaining, the re uh, reclamation of the primordial human nature, the fitra, you become a full human being, true man, as the Taoist would say, as opposed to the transcendent man. So that's the lesser mysteries of human perfection, of the fitra, of man as he was created. But the greater mysteries is the extinction of humanity in the bosom of divinity. And that's something that goes from the eye of certainty to the hakaliyaki, uh, to the truth of certainty. So when he says that there are those who have reached uh, only the garden of the heart, and therefore who have become perfect human beings, in quotation marks, in the sense of complete in San Kamo, in the sense of the human perfections, but not yet the divine perfection, the lesser mysteries, not the greater mysteries. Such a person may nonetheless be on so close to entering the garden of the spirit that he can feel the warmth of the fire, even if he's not yet been consumed, burnt up by it. So as I say, when Abdurrahman was reading that part, I couldn't help thinking that Dr. Lings is, as it were, describing his own state of approximation to the garden of the spirit when he spoke so personally. And how would you know, one kind of <laughs> ask him, how do you know that there are those people who can feel the warmth of the fire before they've actually been burnt by it? He would just turn around and say, well, because I'm one of them in his early 40s. And I believe that by the time of the end of his life, he was one who had been completely extinguished in that fire, completely consumed. And that's why you, when in his presence, you had the sense of a man who was totally transparent to the divine reality. So in a certain sense, he wasn't there when he was there. And that's one of the things that we're told in the Quran that about the prophet and how the state of, of divinity prevailing over humanity, the one who has attained the greater mysteries, uh, the one who God loves, according to the Hadith and Nawafil. When I love him, I become the hand by which he smites the Fakuntu. Uh, I become the, uh, the eye by which he sees, the hearing by which he hears, the hand by which he smites, the foot upon which he walks. So such a person is described, the Prophet is described. You did not throw the pebbles at the Battle of Badr. You did not throw when you threw, but God it was who threw. So this is the kind of mystery of the metaphysical reality versus the physical manifestation. From the physical manifestation that the prophet threw the pebbles, the metaphysical reality, it was the God who threw those. God acts through the effaced individual. So this idea of effacement leading to uh, the revelation of the imminence of the divine reality within the effaced individual, all of these ideas were conveyed to us in one moment of being in the presence of Dr. Lings, because he was someone totally effaced. He wasn't there. And yet he was there. When he spoke, it was as if you were speaking from another planet, from a higher place than this world. So that's why I say that he was, that, that God was transparent, transparently visible. He, Lings, was transparent to the divinity within him. So I shall stop there and I just ask if there are any uh, questions that anybody may have. If not, then uh, we can terminate the seminar and look forward to seeing you in two weeks' time, inshallah. Uh, uh, thank you for your uh, 
so wonderful wonderful explanation i uh, i actually can uh can feel the warmth of its flames uh i want to ask something on uh wait a minute sorry i uh, this is Muhammad Anwar, isn't it? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Um, your explanation is so beautiful and so deep, uh, I think, because uh, I feel so, so, uh, so, I don't know how to, to interpret this. But uh, my question, I think, uh, may, may be very lower level of uh, metaphysical truth, because, uh, uh, in the last seminar, uh, in the page number eight, uh, Dr. Lynch wrote, uh, for this perfect soul represented in Islam by the soul of the prophets is none other than the knights of power, Laylatul Qadab. What I understand in this uh, writing, the soul of the prophet Muhammad is the Laylatul Qadab. What I believe, and I think general Muslims believe, that we can find the Laylatul Qadab only in the last 10 nights of Ramadan. In the one hadith, Muslim Ahmad, the Prophet said, seek Laylatul Qadar in the last 10 nights of Ramadan. And if you miss anything, make sure you do not miss the last seven nights. Uh, my question is, how can we find the Laylatul Qadar in the last 10 days in Ramadan if the Laylatul Qadar is the soul of the Prophet? And my but second question... Have, yeah, simple quick answer to that is that if we understand the distinction between the Vahir and the Baatin, we will understand that what is outwardly one particular night in the last 10 nights of Ramadan is inwardly the finding within oneself of the soul of the Prophet. Remember uh, that's the Baatin that one has to find within oneself the soul of the Holy Prophet. Remember how Rumi puts it, that in the Kitab Fihi Ma Fihi, when he talks about the verse, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ مِنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ There has come unto you a prophet, a rasul, from your own souls. Now, the vahir means a prophet has come from amongst yourselves you Arabs, your community, someone's come from amongst you. But the Baatim that Rumi helps us to understand is that this prophet has come from each and every one of your own souls or within yourself. And so when you see the prophet coming from paradise, he's like pure water and you are like muddy water. And you see the prophet, you say, yes, that's what we were like once in paradise. So you realize that what the prophet exteriorizes is your own interior reality. So he's an exteriorization of your own inward dimension. He makes outwardly visible and manifest, apparent, tangible, imitatable what you in your own essence contain as a spiritual seed of possibility within your fitra. It's the same fitra, whether it's the prophet or you, the same fitra, and that fitra is like pure water of paradise. And you recognize yourself when you see the prophet. You recognize your deepest self, not your outward, fallible, silly, empirical individuality with all your foibles and your limitations your anxieties and so on but what you recognize when you see the prophet and each and every one of us has this possibility by the way this is not something historical that's only when you visibly see the prophet when ibn arabi says very beautifully that those of you who lived after the time of the holy prophet and you want to have a vision of him then what do you do just look at the quran read the quran because this Quran is like Muhammad ibn Abdullah. He actually gives him his full name. This Muhammad ibn Abdullah is like this, this book is the inlibration. The man made book, just like in Christianity, you say the word made flesh. The, the Quran 
is the man Muhammad made into a book, and the book is next is a formal manifestation of the same Muhammadan reality, the Hakika Muhammadiyah, the Nur Muhammadi, that is at one with that degree of walaya that is in each and every person's soul as a possibility of realization. So if we want to look at the Prophet, if we want to hear the Prophet, if we want to engage with the Prophet spiritually, we can do nothing better than to gaze at the calligraphy of the Quran, but more importantly, recite the Word of God and memorize, interiorize the speech of God so that it becomes, in English we have this saying, you learn something by heart. It means you've memorized it. Nowadays, people think that memorization is just learning by rote. Oh, it's just mechanical rote learning. But it's the opposite, that when you're aware of what this speech is that you're memorizing, and you know this is the divine energy, you know this is a theurgic power, the presence, the energetic presence of God coming through the spoken word. The kalam, remember, is not words. Kalam is speech, words that are spoken. Qawl al-haqq, it's the word that has been spoken by the reality. So when we engage with this book, with full knowledge of what it is that we're doing, with the tajalli of al-haqq in the Quran, then what we're imbibing and putting into our heart is the divine energy, is the prophetic reality. And that's why the Prophet said in a very, unfortunately, little commented saying, which has been amplified by Imam Ali after him, Man al-Qur'an For one who recites the Quran, it's as if he's bringing Nubuwa into his very being, into his body, between his two sides of his physical body. So we are drinking at the fountain of the prophetic reality of the Haqiqa Muhammadiyah. We are imbibing the Nur Muhammadi every time we recite the Quran. That's our way of, if you like, coming closer and closer to the, the fire, is coming closer and closer to the light of the fire coming closer and closer to feeling the warmth of its flames, even before we've been burnt up by it. So that's how I think we can understand the, the two approaches to the Laylatul Qadr. One is that that night in which, that particular night when the Prophet received the first revelation, is a time in history, and it's repeated cyclically through every year, through the Ramadan, through the last 10 days. But the spiritual batin aspect of this is that we are all waiting to discover the emergence of the Laylatul Qadr, not as a point in time, but as a dimension in space, the space of our own heart, a dimension of space waiting to be discovered within us. So we go from outward succession temporal succession, outward movement and awaiting in time to an inward assimilation of the dimension of spiritual space, the space of the heart, which Dr. Ling used to say very, very frequently, the Hadith Qudsi, my heavens, my earth has not room to contain me, my heavens have not room to contain me, but the heart of my believing slave has room to contain me. So there is this incredible infinitude of space within our own heart that is big enough to contain the totality of absolute reality. So let's think about that. As a, as a way of uh, appreciating the spiritual meaning of the Laylatul Qadr. It's within our own heart. All right, are there any other questions?
No, well, if not, then we can, uh, yeah, let, then we could um, terminate the seminar and uh, perhaps we could stop the recording now.